Hello friends and welcome back to the Veterinary Emergency Education Podcast. It's been a while since we've spoken, but since it's lovely summertime, I thought we'd take the time to talk about allergic reactions and anaphylaxis. So let's dive right in. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the spectrum of allergic reactions, um, fancily known as type 1 hypersensitivity reactions in dogs. Because uh, we know dogs and cats do things a little differently, so today we'll just be focusing on the dogs who are more likely to get into trouble. Um, we often get the swollen face dog as a common presentation to the emergency room, um, but that's very different to the more extreme end of the spectrum, the anaphylactic patient. The treatment's different, um, and our, our outcomes and our expectations are different as well. So. From a physiological point of view, uh, uh, type 1 sensitivity reactions are typically an exaggerated immune response that leads our mast cells to blow themselves up and degranulate. Uh, when they degranulate, they release a number of things, uh, but for us, the most important of those is histamine, and I suppose heparin. Uh, reactions can be local, so you can get the patient with the hives, the pruritus, uh, the angioedema and the soft tissues um, or even local to the GI tract and getting some vomiting and diarrhea. In the extreme situations then we get a full body reaction and end up with cardiovascular collapse. So if we're thinking about what the main difference between a mild reaction like angioedema uh, and anaphylaxis is, it's typically your cardiovascular stability. So common scenario, uh, you have a dog, swollen face, some hives, maybe they're a bit itchy. Uh, typically we'll start with a history and uh, triage or your primary survey. You might not always figure out the underlying cause. Um, some, it's pretty straightforward. They've had a bit of a vaccine, they've been chasing a wasp or a wasp got into the house, um, but we don't always know why they're swollen. Um, if they're stable, there's no cardiovascular compromise or any changes, um, then typically these guys do really well with just some sole antihistamine therapy. Over here in the UK we use chlorphenamine that can be given intramuscularly, IV. Um, over in North America diphenhydramine is the drug of choice um, which I believe is typically relegated to intramuscular administration um, and not IV administration but I'm happy to be wrong about that. Um, you can also give these orally um, if for some reason there's some severe cost restraints or you don't have the injectable form in, um, these patients aren't in a, a dire emergency so oral administration would be just fine. Um, a lot of people give steroids for these patients as well and um, in my experience I haven't found that to be necessary. I certainly don't think you're doing any harm but just keep in mind that your steroid peak effect is going to be anywhere four to six hours after administration. So your real workhorse is going to be your antihistamine. Um, in a rare case, if these guys aren't responding to antihistamines as your sole therapy, then definitely do start some steroids, some prednisolone or a dexamethasone injection. Um, but for me, I've, I've not come a case that hasn't responded to 48 hours of antihistamines. And that's my typical prescribing behavior as well. I, I don't just do a one-off. I usually send them home with 24 to 48 hours of um, antihistamine or even if they've got pyriton which is chlorphenamine at home or Benadryl 
at home um, they can just give some of those at a prescribed dose from a, a cascade point of view there are no licensed veterinary antihistamines of of the h1 variety so i think you're pretty safe just uh, telling them to get over-the-counter pyroton making sure they don't get pyrotes which is a different drug and making sure they're giving the appropriate dose at the appropriate intervals you also want to be quite clear with the carers of these dogs to look out for a biphasic response or uh, a recurrence of these signs so if their angioedema is not going down if they start vomiting have any diarrhea weakness collapse they do need to come right back to the clinic because uh, potentially they are having a worsening reaction or they're having a biphasic response which can happen anywhere from I suppose 24 to 72 hours after the initial insult so just be sure to manage expectations and give them some clear criteria for when they need to come back so we know these guys do really well with little treatment and I suppose a lot of them just get benign neglect at home and, and don't always make it to the practice on the flip side for our repeat offenders with some allergies repeat exposure can worsen the response you take your typical peanut allergy in a person the more and more and more they're exposed to peanuts the worse and worse their allergic reactions can get so if you've got a patient who is having recurrent allergic reactions or is a real wasp chaser and and keeps having more severe reactions um, you can dispense something like an EpiPen or even adrenaline um, in a syringe with a needle and teach the carers how to administer that. Um, I think it's pretty rare that you'll need to do that, but I suppose that's another strategy that you can employ for your more severe patients. So those guys we see a lot, they're sort of bread and butter emergency medicine and the, the pretty low complication rates. Um, on the other end of the spectrum we have our anaphylaxis patient, which is a real true emergency. And true anaphylaxis is system-wide type 1 hypersensitivity reaction and you've got a combination of all or, or some of the following uh, altermentation, severe bronchoconstriction resulting in respiratory distress uh, and cardiovascular collapse so on presentation these guys are in hypovolemic shock they've got altermentation, tachycardia poor pulses, pale mucous membranes. Um, they may have had a, a history of exposure to some sort of allergen like a bee or a wasp sting. Uh, and they may have vomited and had a bowel movement right before collapse, supporting evidence because sometimes it can be a bit misleading and other things can cause these signs as well. Um, if you've got access to ultrasound, having a look at the gallbladder and looking for gallbladder wall edema that's commonly known as the gallbladder halo sign you've got a lot of mast cells in the liver the liver and the GI tract are the shock organs of the dog and when you get the massive histamine release in the GI tract you get lots of hepatic venous congestion backup of fluid and thus your gallbladder wall edema now there are other things that can cause that, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, another finding that can support your suspicion of anaphylaxis is elevated serum ALT on biochemistry. Other things can call this, cause this, it may be a pre-existing condition and it can also take anywhere from two to four hours after anaphylaxis to elevate. So 
The presence of an elevated ALT may increase your suspicion, but the absence of it probably will not decrease your suspicion of anaphylaxis. Diseases like pericardial effusion and a number of other other diseases can cause a gallbladder halo sign. Um, not all of them will cause collapse and cardiovascular compromise, so do keep an open mind when you're evaluating these patients. So once you've got the patients in, you've done your triage, your primary survey, you're pretty comfortable with your diagnosis of anaphylaxis, your first line treatment is going to be one, IV fluids, because you want to correct that hypervolemic shock, and two, uh, epinephrine or adrenaline. It's not a commonly used resuscitation drug or hypovolemic shock resuscitation drug, but the real benefits of adrenaline are that it's a great antihistamine. It's also a good bronchodilator and it uh, will help counter all of your rampant vasodilation that's going on. So from a dose point of view, you can give five to 10 micrograms, not milligrams, five to 10 micrograms per kilogram, uh, IV or IM. Uh, if you feel like that's not doing the job and despite some fluids and your initial infusion or your initial bolus, you can switch to an infusion. Because all infusions are fun and annoyingly, they list them in minutes. When no one deals in minutes, everyone does kilograms per hour. Um, you can give 0.05 micrograms per kilogram per minute, but if you're a normal human being who thinks in hours for infusions rather than minutes, uh, then you can give three micrograms per kilogram per hour, um, which is the same as 0.003 milligrams per kilogram per hour, um, and then just slowly titrate that up to effect. So you replace your fluid deficits, especially if they've had lots of vomiting or diarrhea, you're getting your vasopressors in, you're stopping your histamine release with your adrenaline slash epinephrine. Um, now we can think about the other things that these patients need. So uh, antihistamines, H1 and H2 blockers. We've talked about chlorphenamine, diphenhydramine earlier. You can go ahead and give those. Um, it's also nice to give H2 blockers for these guys. Typically something like ranitidine is appropriate because you can give that both IM, IV. Um, and then again, we come back to the, the question of steroids and it's still fairly controversial in veterinary medicine uh, whether or not we give steroids for anaphylaxis. I suppose we're getting more data and it's becoming less controversial and certainly it is standard of care for a lot of human emergency practitioners to give steroids to their anaphylaxis patients. You've got to remember You've got four to six hours before those steroids are reaching peak effects. So it's not a first line drug. It's not doing the work, um, but it may help correct some uh, vasculitis because you've got a massive amount of inflammation going on. You've got all of this histamine being released by the mast cells as well as heparin, and you can end up with vasculitis and coagulopathies. So potentially your steroid is going to help mitigate some of that vasculitis. So those are your add-on drugs. From a baseline point of view, a lot of people will have done a, a minimum database, be that uh, Paxil volume, total solids, a blood gas, a biochemistry, hematology, whatever you like to do. Uh, but it's often helpful to get 
clotting times in these guys as well. So if you've got a in-house coag machine that can run PT, APTT, it's nice to know where you stand in the beginning and monitor them for any sort of bleeding. Because if you do end up with a hemoabdomen, you know that in the beginning they either had normal or not normal coagulation times. And serial abdominal ultrasound or free fluid checks is also really helpful in these guys. And I think a lot of people are using that as a monitoring tool or at least an initial evaluation tool in a lot of collapsed patients. It's um, a quick cheeky peek in front of the liver around the kidneys behind the bladder, but there's tons of uh, literature and videos surrounding how to do that properly. Once you've established that there is some fluid in the abdomen, and that might not happen until you've given some fluid and help restore volume and pressure, um, you need to be monitoring that closely to make sure that there's not severe bleeding going on. Um, it's very unlikely this is a surgical disease. I have anecdotes in my mind where you can get uh, collapse, hemoabdomen, and it's not anaphylaxis and you've got a, a bleeding lesion somewhere, but um, you know if the shoe fits and the story fits, then you know, these are not patients you want to open up. They may need something like a plasma transfusion or replacement of clotting factors if they start to exhaust all of their clotting factors. Um, but typically, monitor them. Uh, make sure we're not getting to compartments and drone with severe bleeding um, and provide analgesia. If it seems like we're getting severe bleeding, then you may have to intervene, be that pack cell transfusions, plasma transfusions, etc. But um, I think that would be a very, very unusual case um, for you to get to that. Once they're stable, you need to be monitoring their blood pressure, their mentation, and, and signs of um, bleeding anywhere else in, in the body or, or any of the other um, places like your pericardium or thorax, but again, not super common. Once you're comfortable, they're a bit more stable and static, you can start tapering down your adrenaline infusion um, and monitoring their response to that, and hopefully get them out of the hospital as soon as possible, again, with good monitoring instructions, because um, I suppose you can have a biphasic response, um, they can deteriorate, and if you never really knew the cause of their anaphylaxis to begin with, if they've got a, a cheeky mast cell tumour lying somewhere um, that's become agitated or infected and um, it's releasing uh, histamine, then, then you may have a recurrence and you may need to do some fishing. Uh, but again, I don't feel those make up the bulk of the cases, it's usually our wasp stings, bee stings, etc, etc, who are getting into trouble. Um, so that's that's it for uh, a part one of our summer series. We're going to be talking about heat injuries pretty soon, so keep an eyeball out and subscribe if you want to hear from that. And of course, if you guys have any questions, uh, you can go to the website, uh, vetemerge.cc, um, shoot me an email, get in touch, we're happy to take requests. Uh, so thank you and goodbye.